You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. As people with second homes are urged not to travel to them this weekend to help contain the spread of COVID-19, a leading consultant in infectious diseases is warning that people who are homeless or living in poverty are more likely to contract the infection. Professor Cleana Nikialik, consultant in infectious diseases at St James's Hospital in Dublin, says poverty may increase people's risk of becoming very sick with the virus. Professor Nikialik as part of a team in St. James's and Trinity College Dublin gathering information on the progress of the infection. We can talk to her now. A very good morning to you and thanks for talking to us this morning, Professor Professor Nikalik. Good morning. I suppose one would would expect intuitively that homelessness and poverty would be uh, risk factors in contracting any infection, but there is a wealth of evidence, is there not, to back this up? Absolutely. Um, And I think it's for two reasons. So firstly, that people living in homelessness or living in poverty and overcrowded accommodation are more likely to come into contact with the virus. It's harder for them to self-isolate. And secondly, we think that when people are living in the stress of being poor, particularly like that experienced by homeless people or Roma, that their immune systems are already activated. So they're much more likely when they get coronavirus, we think, to develop more severe disease. Um, There's been phenomenal work in protecting the homeless people in Dublin and I think we haven't seen the outbreak of coronavirus in the homeless community that we expected. People have been cocooned, they've been protected, it's just amazing. Um, But we're very concerned about the Roma community in which there are a lot of people living in very close quarters. And for those who do uh, uh, contract the the disease, um, their their risk of becoming seriously ill is that much greater, is that right? We think it may be. So certainly their risk of becoming much more ill with other infections that we've seen in the past is definitely is much higher. We don't know yet with coronavirus, it's so new and we're looking to, to look at that research. So it's really important when countries are looking at the statistics of who is getting sick with coronavirus, who is dying from coronavirus, to look at socioeconomic variables to look at social determinants of health, like people's poverty, like their living conditions. Because if we don't have that data, we can't make sensible policies to reduce the risk in those groups. Another pattern that's become, I think, fairly clear, and it's, a, it's around the world in, in practically most countries where the, the infection has got a hold, is that men are dying uh, at twice the rate of women. Now, now, do we understand why that's the case? No, we have some hints. So the immune system, people who become sick with coronavirus, it's really almost that their immune system has gone into overdrive um, rather, than, rather than a difference in the virus per se between people who get very sick and don't. And we know that men's immune system actually works quite differently to women's. So we know that women respond better to the flu vaccine, for example. Um, women's cells are better at controlling viral infection. And we think that that may be part of the reason why men are getting sicker. And again, lots of research um, starts already in Trinity and in Ireland to look at this important question. So it's not necessarily then down to lifestyle, which is often given as, a, as an explanation, perhaps men um, you know, taking less care of themselves, maybe more inclined to drink or smoke. Um, I mean, that is, is certainly a possibility as well. But actually, even if you look in animal models, like in mice or, or rats where they can't drink or smoke, male mice and female mice respond differently to infection. So there's something about your biological sex that affects your responses to infection. Can I talk to you about the progress of the infection here? We're hearing from the public health experts that they believe the curve is being flattened, uh, to use that phrase, too early to say yet whether uh, it's been flattened sufficiently to allow our health services uh, to cope, but we've got to keep the, the measures in place to ensure that everything is done to try and uh, limit the, uh, the spread of the disease. What do you make uh, in relation to the evidence that's coming forward about the progress of the infection here? 
So I absolutely agree. I was on a call yesterday with all the infectious diseases consultants from across Ireland and one after the other, as each person reported from their hospital, they were saying that they hadn't seen the surge they expected, that the measures are working um, and it's just a fantastic position to be in. I think we had been very scared that we would be completely overwhelmed and that hasn't happened yet, but the social distancing and all the measures need to continue. We don't have a vaccine, we don't have a treatment for the infection, all we have is keeping people apart from each other. It's a bit like putting food colouring. If you put it into a bath, you'll have a huge pool of water that's all coloured with the food colouring. Whereas if you have the water in lots of separate drinking glasses, that that food colouring will be limited to that particular glass. Much smaller number of cases that we can manage. So keep going, Ireland. Our health correspondent Fergal Bars was reporting earlier that uh, internal uh, HSE documents uh, show that your own hospital, St James, is a very large, uh, of course, acute hospital in in Dublin, has the second largest number of cases of uh, COVID patients. I think something in excess of 1995. Is that right? How are you coping? We do. So it's absolutely phenomenal. You you couldn't have believed that it would happen, but the hospital has just changed how it works. The staff have changed how they work. We have a huge increase in the number of ICU beds if we need them um, and we're able to cope. It's just phenomenal. Well, we wish you and all your colleagues uh, every success in the, the days and weeks ahead and appreciate you taking time to talk to us this morning. Professor Cleana Nikialek from St. James's Hospital. 210 people here have now died from COVID-19-related illnesses. 5,709 people have been confirmed with the virus. The most up-to-date figures we have for people in intensive care around the country is from just two days ago. Then it was 174. St. James's Hospital in Dublin has the highest number, followed by Beaumont, Talla, St. Vincent's, The Matter and Conley. On Monday, according to internal data seen by RTE, The Matter had 12 patients in critical care beds with seven of them on ventilators. They had 87 confirmed COVID-19 patients overall in their hospital. Well, we can talk now to Dr. Coleman O'Loughlin, who is Director of Critical Care Medicine at The Matter. Dr. O'Loughlin, we're very grateful for your time this morning. Thank you for joining us. You've been in ICU all morning so far. What can you tell us about the picture? How many are being treated and what you can tell us about how they are? Yeah, good morning. Um, yes, uh, it's very busy in the intensive care, as you can imagine. Um, as the figures will attest, the uh, the number of cases in the east of Ireland is 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 is, is predominantly higher, and uh, in the Dublin area is reflected in that number as well. So that the ICUs in Dublin have been very busy. We're uh, a month into it. Our first case came in the eighth of March, or now eighth of April. Um, we've been very busy. Um, as I say, most of our patients in the intensive care are there because of COVID related lung disease. A lot of them have received ventilation. And of course, we have non-COVID related disease that we have to care for as well. And we can't forget about those either. Um, so between the mix of the two, we are full in the intensive care unit and we have had to breach out into the our kind of a surge capacity too, which is our, our high dependency unit. And we have patients ventilated there also. So it is quite busy. Um, I suppose it's also important to say that uh, because we're a month into it, we're also seeing that patients have had responded to the treatment that's been offered them and therapy has been given and they have uh, some of them have done very well and have been discharged back to the wards uh, that's very reassuring for all of us obviously reassuring for them and their families as well but uh, so it's busy um, and it's continuing to be busy we're already this morning getting referrals from the ward for patients who are starting to deteriorate on ward level care as well and when you say your icu is full how many beds is that 
we have 18 beds in our standard ICU. We've been running at 17 or 18 beds for many years now. Um, and between the mix of, as I said, as I said COVID disease, which is the predominant um, patient cohort at the moment, and non-COVID, we're full at 18 beds in the ICU. Um, we also have had to move some of our sicker patients out of ICU into the high dependency and for ventilation as well. That happened just before the weekend. Um, so it, it, it's full um, and uh, say we were lucky, I suppose, in this, um, if, if one can call it lucky, uh, in this COVID crisis that we had a lead in time to allow us to kind of shut down the normal activity of the hospital and free up a lot of spare capacity that exists in the hospital. Uh, and with that lead in time, um, that has allowed us as I say, to, to build up plans for search one, search two, search three, search four, etc. Uh, so that we can enact those plans as, as the referrals come at a higher rate. And in relation to the high dependency unit and when it gets full, I mean, how many how many beds are in the high dependency unit? What happens then when you need to move people to critical care beds and you don't have them? Um, that, that's, that's, that's going to be extraordinarily challenging for us. Um, we're, we're, we're lucky. I mean, every hospital is slightly different in this. So I can only speak to, to, to the structures here in the matter. The high dependency is another 18-bed unit uh, right beside the intensive care and the medical nursing staff are all the one governed structure. Um, so uh, it isn't um, considered um, um, too challenging, I suppose. Is, uh, that's all uh, in context, um, I suppose. But uh, to, to move patients into the high dependency unit and start uh, administering intensive care therapies there. We can, in theory, move up to um, an extra 18 beds by filling the high dependency unit if it comes to that with COVID patients and non-COVID patients as they come as well. Um, and beyond that, we have plans to move into other wards. Um, we have ventilators set up on other wards. Um, but I suppose the biggest challenge at that stage will be the staffing problem. To run an intensive care bed uh, requires a huge amount of medical staff and in particular nursing staff to run it safely. Uh, we have a standard of care which is one-to-one -one nursing, so every patient has a dedicated nurse 24 hours a day uh, to run our normal standards of care uh, for intensive care in Ireland. So that's, that would be threatened, that could be diluted if we stretch beyond the numbers we're comfortable. So that's a bit of an unknown yet, but uh, we have plans for that and uh, I suppose that's all we can do is we do our best uh, as things stand. And you said there that, that some people have recovered, some people have been discharged, that's terrific. Are you noticing another pattern though of patients in ICU? Do many deteriorate quickly? Yes, it, uh, it is a unique disease. I don't, we've obviously not seen a pandemic like this before, but initially people were using comparisons with the flu. Uh, I think it's fair to say that it's a very different disease process uh, to influenza and what we would normally see in, in wintertime influenza outbreaks uh, occur every single year in every country, I suppose. Um, yeah, so, the, so these patients are very sick. That's the first thing to say. Um, this is a, a devastating lung injury, the ones that require admission intensive care. Some are lucky enough that they have the physiological reserve, I suppose, the, the, uh, the strength to um, fight this off with their own immune system and they get the assistance of inter interventions from intensive care. Unfortunately, others aren't so lucky and the, the process that uh, undermines the pneumonia um, continues to worsen while they're in intensive care. And I suppose it goes back to one of the earlier problems as we talked about a lot of this disease. There's no definitive treatment for this. There's no uh, antiviral agent that's been proven to work. There's no other agents that we can give them as opposed to a bacterial pneumonia. We give them antibiotics and that helps with the, uh, for the patient to improve. Um, we don't have anything like that. So all we're doing is giving support and we're doing organ support, if you like. So we're supporting lungs, we're supporting kidneys, etc. And we're giving the patient the chance to recover and 
we're trying to minimize complications along that route as well. But if, if they recover, um, then that's fantastic and it, it really makes everyone feel great about the interventions that we're using. But it's certainly a fact that some of the patients are not recovering and some have passed away in intensive care. We don't have treatment, so it's very hard for us to do any more than support them as best we can. And Dr. O'Loughlin, for those who don't make it and who won't make it, what is the protocol for their families? Can they come in and be with them when they're dying? Yeah, and again, this this again highlights one of the one of the really difficult um, parts uh, of this disease is that. Um, Families are aware, we're aware that there's a huge public obligation to try and uh, minimise spread of this disease and social isolation and social distancing um, is very important. At the same time, it's so important to us to offer families the chance to come and be with somebody, uh, with their loved ones, if, if they're going to the process uh, of passing away or have passed away. Um, we offer families in minimal numbers, if you like, one or two uh, people to come into the intensive care. We offer them... Uh, to put on the PP and demonstrate how that's put on. A lot of the families have been reluctant to do that, uh, which is very, very difficult for them. Um, they're aware that um, they're, they're, there's a public health issue behind all this. But we try to comfort them as much as possible and reassure them that they come in. We've had family members have come into the room um, and we've had families where that hasn't happened because the family were not uh, not prepared to do that. But it is, it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, uh, we've never seen anything like this before. Uh, we have a very well-established um, end-of-life care path, uh, pathway in the hospital in the intensive care. And a lot of that has gone out the window because of this, um, this disease. So we're, we're, we're doing our level best to help families. Uh, we're trying to understand the difficulties that they're in. Um, at the same time, we're trying to uh, live up to our obligations of, of social distancing and trying to uh, tie in with the public health efforts as well. So all in all, it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, and that does tie into the difficulties that our nursing staff are experiencing as well. So, But you want to make the point evening. to families who are listening that even if they personally find it too difficult to come in and, and be with their loved ones as they're dying, that their loved ones are not alone in that ICU. It, it, as best we can, um, yes, we will. We will make. We will do everything we can to help them, um, to to be with them um, in, in this very difficult time. Um, again, as I say, there's huge challenges around this, and you know, there's a lot of uh, fear in the community. There's a lot of fear, I suppose, in the intensive care world, uh, the nursing staff, the medical staff, uh, about this disease. Um, we're seeing a lot of our own staff um, getting sick, and that's that's been reflected throughout the world. So. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult, but yes, um, our job is, is to look after patients and by extension look after their families. Okay. And we'll do everything we can to, to, to help them in this, in this time. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, on behalf of them all, I'm sure our gratitude to you and take care, you and your staff. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Coleman O'Loughlin, Director of Critical Care Medicine at the Matter Hospital in Dublin. While there have been some light-hearted comments of late about the number of corona babies we can expect in the next nine months, for some women and couples, their dreams of starting a family have been placed on hold and potentially shattered uh, their expectations. IVF treatment has been cancelled across the country, with patients left in the dark over when the system can resume. Reporter Louise Byrne joins us with more on this. Louise, how many people are affected by the cancellation of fertility treatment? Well, Brian, there are around 
6,000 IVF cycles undertaken in Ireland every year and they're all now on hold. Since the middle of last month, fertility clinics have been closed and the procedures can't be done. Now, for lots of people having assisted reproduction, time is of the essence. The clock is ticking. And right now, patients have no idea when their next opportunity to try for a child will come. Denise Phillips, who lives in County Kildare, had just begun the process of having another round of IVF treatment in the hope of having a second child. I've had miscarriage. I've had eight failed cycles. I've done IUI. I've done IVF. Um, I have Beth who is just turned five in February. The reason why I wanted, I get upset now, the reason why I wanted to 2020, I was like, I want to have no regrets. So when Beth asks me for a sibling, that I've said I've tried my very, very best. Going in to start my scans and get my medication and my, my outline and off we go to start our journey. And then I got a phone call about four days later saying that all... All IVF cycles were postponed or cancelled. It it was a big shock, like because you mentally build yourself up for this so much that when somebody tells you that you can't go ahead with your transfer, it's just devastating. It's it's beyond devastating. Like it's very hard because you literally would walk on fire to have this baby. What happens if? This virus is around for a long time and we haven't got, we can't go into the clinics or, you know, they haven't got the facilities maybe to test us. It's going to probably take a long time. Like, So Brian, that uncertainty is adding to the worry of people waiting for fertility treatment. And when I looked for contributors for this item, I got loads of emails and social media messages, but mostly from people reluctant to speak publicly. It's a really sensitive issue. There is frustration, there is anger. You'll hear it repeatedly asked, why are off-licences considered essential, but fertility treatment isn't? So what then, Louise, are the clinics saying about the cancellation of treatment? Well, the reason IVF was stopped initially was a European decision to discourage assisted reproduction because we don't know the full effect of COVID-19 on early pregnancy. That really annoyed some women who felt their choice was being taken away. But at this point, it's the strict social distancing that's the significant issue. Dr. John Kennedy is the medical director of the Sims IVF clinic in Dublin and in Cork. It's impossible to practice social distancing and do a cycle of IVF. It's just a capital. You can take all the precautions you like in the world with regard to PPE and I have some issues with that. One, it's by no means perfect. And two, if you have a good stockpile of good direct PPE, that should probably be in the hands of the general hospitals at this point. I think their need is far greater than ours. I think what it comes down to is that definition of are we an essential medical service or not? Now, I could certainly make a coherent argument that we are. But if we continue trading and we stay open, either a patient or a staff member is going to become sick. And that risk-benefit for me seems off. We generally would have transfers booked four to six weeks in advance. So we had full transfer lists for the month of April. That's four or five transfers a day, five days a week. And we're having to cancel all of them on a rolling basis. So the numbers are mounting up all the time. So with that backlog now growing, and remember 6,000 IVF cycles each year in Ireland, the question everyone is asking is when can treatment resume? That's very, very difficult. 
I do know some of the clinics in Europe have put out a statement they're planning to open up in June. And that's great. More power to them for saying that. You know, I don't know how they can make that statement. They don't have any better idea than I do of what's going to happen next week or in two weeks' time. If somebody put a gun to my head, and I absolutely cannot be held to this, my gut is telling me nothing good is going to happen in April. It's unlikely that something will happen in May. But certainly after that, I think if all the clinics are still closed and all non-essential services are still closed, really everything's going to start to struggle an awful lot. It's in everybody's interest that as soon as the clinics can reopen, that it's safe and reasonable, so they will do so. And we're already putting provisional plans in place to step up things in terms of service, in terms of timings, to try to get the backlog of people through as quickly as is possible. It sucks. It's awful being stuck in a weird situation where you don't know what's going to happen. But as soon as we can get started up again, we will get started up again. Now, Dr. Kennedy says that once we get into June, clinics may look at, in effect, living with some element of risk and clinics are considering more stringent protocols to facilitate reopening. But that is not on the immediate horizon. I suppose, Louise, some people listening to this may say that notwithstanding the the stress that these couples are under, there are more acute issues right now. Yeah, I put that to Denise Phillips, who we heard before Dr. Kennedy there. Her IVF was cancelled a few weeks ago, and this was her response. Just because there's a bigger picture and somebody worse off than you doesn't mean that I can't feel sad and obsessed. Obviously, the government have to do things that are right, you know, but it's horrible for somebody to take you've already your your chance of all that's already been taken off you, and now something else has been taken off you. It's it's, it's hard, like Denise Phillips uh, ending that report by Louise Byrne. Astronomers are promising us a treat in the night sky tonight, a pink supermoon, the first full moon of spring coinciding with the moment when the lo- in the lunar cycle when the moon is closest to Earth. And the good news is that even if it's a bit cloudy tonight, there's still a good chance of seeing the spectacle as it'll last the entire night. Francis McCarthy is Education and Research Officer at Black Rock Observatory in Cork and can tell us more. A very good morning to you, Francis. Good morning um, to you, Brian. So tell us about this pink supermoon. What are we going to see? Okay, so first off, the name pink is not what we're looking for in color. The, the names that we have for the full moons have very much come to us from North American culture. And the old farmers' almanacs would assign a name of what was ever happening in the world at the time. So if you're in North America right now, there's a beautiful flower that blooms at this time of year, and it's a pink color. So the pink moon is the color of the ground. What we're going to be looking for is a full moon. It'll be full in the very middle of the night. So the moon that we look for to be rising at sort of about half seven-ish. Okay, so opposite the sunset. So figure out where the sun's going down. Right now I'm looking out east. I can see a beautiful sunrise just coming up over Cork Harbor. And I'm going to be looking east tonight for moonrise. The sun will be behind me setting over in the west. So a roughly 7.30-ish, we're looking for the moon to come up. And that's at the time that the moon will, in fact, be the very closest to us. So it'll be quite close to us in the sky um, in actual terms. Um, less, mm-hmm. you want the numbers? Less than 357,000 kilometers. Right, that close. Yeah, so oh. that's really close. 
got to remember, people look at the moon and go, wow, it's really close, which mm. compared to any other, you know, celestial object, it is. But it still took the astronauts three days to get there. It's a pretty far distance away. But the spectacle is going to last through the night. I mean, it, it, it's at its closest, as, as we see it initially uh, yes. in the east, but it'll actually be evident right, right through the night. Is that, is that the yes, case? Yes, so the moon will be rising, and then it will be at its, you know, high in the sky, and close to us, the, 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 um, the time of the actual full moon will be in the middle of the night. So it, it'll have moved, oh, you know, a couple of hundred kilometers away by that point, but it will still be spectacularly bright. Mm. It's about 10% bigger. Now, it is very tricky to notice that 10%. If you go, oh, the moon that I saw rising last night and the moon that I see rising tonight, well, when they're right near the horizon, they look enormous anyways. There's a, there's a secondary effect that happens that's not completely understood, but when you look at the moon rising right on the horizon, you would swear it has swollen up to 20 times its normal size. Mm. Have you ever noticed and that? You just catch the moon and you go, whoa. Yes, and it just, it just takes your breath away for that moment. It for that, really, for that really moment. does. Now, and as you say, is this is a, a phenomenon. It's a ridiculous it, trick to try shrink it back to its normal size. And I like to describe it as trying to catch the moon in your hands. So grab your hands and just kind of squeeze around the moon and just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and see just how big it is when you're not referencing it to the horizon. And it's really remarkable. And as we're all stuck at home at the moment, it's something that might pass a little bit of time tonight. Um, Just a final question, Francis, and I didn't know this, but we always have a full moon in the week before Easter because, of course, Easter is determined by the the lunar cycle and the sequence of full full moons over the spring period. It is. So I always know that Easter week, even if I'm not entirely sure when the full moon is, I know that I get a full moon the week immediately before Easter. So I love looking out for that and thinking, you know, will the weather be with us? And I think today is going to be glorious. So the thought of just, you know, half seven tonight, moseying out under the setting sun with the moon rising, could there be anything better? Um, I can't think of anything. Francis, thanks very much indeed. And we will look forward to that. Appreciate you talking to us this morning. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has spent a second night in intensive care as he continues to receive treatment for the coronavirus. A Downing Street spokesman described his condition as stable. At least 6,159 people have died from COVID-19 in the UK, although it's believed the true figure could be considerably higher. We can go to London now and our correspondent, Sean Whelan. Sean, what's known about Boris Johnson's condition this morning? We haven't had any uh, formal updates uh, from Downing Street. The last uh, bulletin was uh, about 7 o'clock last night, uh, where he was said to be in a stable condition uh, in the intensive care unit, not on a ventilator, not requiring any uh, pumped oxygen, uh, just on what they call a normal oxygen supply. Uh, so that is the latest information that we have on, on, on him, and uh, I guess no news is good news in that sense. In his absence, Dominic Raab, as we were discussing yesterday, is nominally in charge. But is the real picture slightly more complicated? Well, it's more complicated in that there isn't a clear, the established chain of command. I mean, some people will say, yes, there is. And they've uh, set out uh, in great detail uh, a chain of command based on precedent in office uh, of people. So uh, as first Secretary of State, which is one of the the many titles that uh, 
Dominic Raab holds as uh, Foreign Secretary, uh, it would fall to him uh, to take command. And if he goes down uh, in the line of duty, uh, along comes the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who happens to be uh, Richie Sunak. Uh, after him, Priti Patel as Home Secretary. After him, um, Michael Gove. Uh, who is currently in self-isolation because his teenage daughter had shown some symptoms but is apparently uh, feeling much better now. So uh, that is the chain of command. Brandon Lewis, uh, the Northern Ireland Secretary, will be 16th in command ahead of the Scottish and Welsh Secretaries. But I think we can safely say, if we're starting to look that far down the, the Cabinet ranks, there's a major, major crisis uh, at the heart of the British government and uh, something extraordinary will be happening. There's been some uh, ideas floated about uh, national unity governments. Would you be taking in uh, opposition parties, etc., etc.? Uh, I think if we're getting to that stage, it, it will be very very serious crisis time but in terms of the day-to-day -day business in the short term it should be fine um, mr rab has said they've been given pretty clear uh, marching instructions by boris johnson cabinet ministers know what their mission is and it's about delivering on that and that's certainly true in the short term but the longer it goes on uh, the more questions arise about the authority that the government would have to make some of the big decisions that are going to have to be made or coming down the tracks or which may be forced upon them by events. There was further debate yesterday, Sean, about the accuracy or otherwise of the official COVID-19 death rate. There are two sets of figures and they're quite different. They are quite different and uh, I, I think, you know, when the old question mark about cock-up or conspiracy comes in, I don't think there's a conspiracy here. Uh, I've always thought based on the fact that on Monday mornings we seem to be over the past three weeks getting a dip in the number of deaths mm. and then a surge on the Tuesdays that there's a kind of a weekend effect going on that there's something to do with the bureaucracy and the processing of death certificates and the compilation of data and that does appear to be borne out by work by the Office for National Statistics the British equivalent of the, the Central Statistics Office uh, they have been spending a lot of time uh, digging in. I mean, they compile all the deaths um, data for the UK anyway, but they've been uh, doing what careful statisticians do and taking their time and working through the numbers. And basically what they've been finding is that there's a lag of several days between uh, somebody dying uh, and the paperwork being filled in and then the paperwork actually being compiled. So what you're getting is in the daily numbers that are being published uh, by the government uh, every afternoon you're getting a snapshot of what they know at that time but it's not the full picture and uh, the national statistics office are able to wait for about a week to 10 days get the full amount of uh, data all the death certificates and then backfit them to the actual day of death uh, what they're finding there as you said is that there is uh, a much bigger uh, number uh, they're out by about 20-22% every day. Uh, in one instance, they were uh, out by 78% uh, variance between what was being reported in the, the kind of 700 figure and uh, about uh, yeah, 1,600 or so as being the cumulative death toll by the uh, end of, uh, by sorry, 27th of uh, March. Um, so you're looking at, at that date, the COVID-19 deaths were about 4.8, almost 5% of the total UK deaths uh, occurring that week had uh, some element of COVID-19 attached to them. The previous week, the March 20th figures, that was 1% of the death rate. So you can see mm -hmm. a very sp sharp spike in the, uh, the trend 
uh, and the number of deaths being caused by COVID-19 and compared to the average, they have a five-year average figure, uh, we are now into the measurement of excess deaths. That's higher a death rate than the average that you would be expecting and it's caused by COVID-19. Sobering stuff. Sean, thank you very much as always for joining us on the programme. Our London correspondent, Sean Whelan there. The COVID-19 crisis may be dominating the headlines, but it's not the only long-running saga affecting Ireland. 62 days after the general election, the country is still waiting for a new government to be formed. A potential big step forward in solving the problem is likely later today, when Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are expected to finalise their government formation framework document. But with Labour's new leader Alan Kelly seemingly ruling the party out of government on Tuesday's Morning Ireland, the Social Democrats saying they will not do a deal and the Greens divided, who's left to fill the void? Three independent groups, totalling 18 independent TDs, remain firmly in play and could make the difference in ensuring a workable government. But, as Fiacra O'Kioni reports, while all are open to begin talks, their support may be more difficult to secure than it seems. I'm ready to go back into government. I can offer a lot more from within than I can do from outside. My phone would be turned on. I would do everything I could to help the people of County Kerry and the rest of the country. Of course I am interested in going to government and we need a forward-thinking government now. There is a responsibility on every TD to try and assist with the formation of a government. It's nice to feel wanted. And right now, there is no one more wanted in Irish politics than an independent. The three independent groups and other parties are all potentially crucial to government formation, with Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin careful to keep all doors open in recent days. We want and need a third pillar in this government. It's not our view that we should try to bully any party into government. This is a democracy. We've had a general election. I think what emerges has to reflect that election as well. Uh, I think there will be many personalities, many people coming to the table. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are eight seats short of a dull majority and like in 2016, need the help of independents. Among those they are targeting are the 9TD Regional Independence Group, whose members include former ministers Dennis Nocton and firstly Sean Canny. At this stage, uh, the government formation talks are beginning to crank up in that we expect to see uh, the document from the Fianna Fáil Fine Gael discussions. If we are to fight our way out of this COVID-19 and reboot the economy, we need to be there. I think I need to be there. The regional independent group have indicated as a group that we are willing to sit down and discuss what the programme of government might be for the next four to five years. We have had contact from the main political parties. We've already scheduled a a meeting with the two parties, a joint meeting with them on Tuesday. Each TD went to the doorsteps in the recent general election seeking a mandate from the people uh, for change. And you can only implement that change if you're in government. The one thing that the members of my group are are very clear on is that we don't want a situation where uh, people are, are going to potential talks to uh, tag along for the ride, so to speak. The 6TD Rural Independence Group is also open to talks. The opportunity for government and the delay in organising talks is giving both Michael Healy Ray and Matty McGrath food for thought. It looks like an Easter cake they seem to be making. Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael is taking so long. Uh, we're standing at the ready, our independent rural group, to talk to Fianna Fáil. We were to have contact with him last week and we were to have it uh, midweek this week. I'm waiting.
with a bated breath, as many others are, to see what uh, they have cobbled together now to make up the numbers. We need honest, straightforward representation. I think there's a long journey to go. There's a lot of discussions, there's a lot of softly out to be done, but at the end of the day, our country, our country now more than ever before, needs a solid, reliable government. My phone would be turned on, I would discuss, I would have negotiations, I would do everything I could to help the people of County Kerry and the rest of the country. Neither I nor the people of Kerry would ever be used as a mudguard for anybody. A third independent group consists of Marion Harkin, Michael Fitzmaurice and Michael McNamara all of whom have experience of high-level negotiations, both in Ireland and abroad. Former MEP Miss Harkin says we remain in the early stages of talks. It's too early to say yet. We've had no response from the Greens or the Labour Party to indicate finally whether they will or will not be involved. Regardless, I think a number of independents will also be involved in the next government. We are absolutely open. Personally, I ran for election so that I could influence policy. That remains the case. Influencing policy, avoiding being a mudguard and forming a stable government is easy to say, but how difficult is it to do? Former Independent Alliance TD and outgoing Disabilities Minister Finian McGrath says senior hurling is trickier than it seems. You have to keep your eyes wide open because it's a very, very different place to be. My advice to independence going into government is pick five or six key areas of policy and then keep pushing those over the negotiation. You're going to have really tough and difficult days, but you'll also have an ama- amazing days, for example, going into cabinet on a Tuesday morning. But you have to learn the word compromise. Compromise is one word. Risk is another. Regardless of who enters government, Kevin Doyle, Group Head of News at Independent News and Media, says all sides will need to be careful what they wish for. For any independent entering government, it's a huge risk and we've seen plenty of examples in the past, but there is also the possibility for huge gains. This time it's going to be somewhat different because the parish pump is going to have to be decommissioned given the crisis that we're in at the moment. It's a lot of management and it's a big job for whoever will be government chief whip. And in some ways that's why I think that the one big lesson maybe they can learn from the last time out is to pick your independence very, very carefully. One of the trickiest things for independence in in any government at any time, good or bad, is that they very often get blamed for for bad decisions. On the flip side, for the larger parties, there's also a risk. Very often they end up having to bite their own lip, like, for example, the time Fianna McGrath and John Halligan were going to go and sort out North Korea. Kevin Doyle ending that report by Fiacra O'Kioni on government formation 62 days after the general elections. Twenty to nine. I have a confession to make. I abuse my position and put in a special request to Darren for a help for today's sporting memory. We do indeed. Now you weren't alone. I, I'll give you that, Audrey. There was plenty of requests for this one. It's it is really special. Really enjoy putting this one together. Our focus on the Clona Cyclone, Barry McGuigan, nineteen eighty five, the world champion, which he won at Loftus Road, and as well as the radio offering each day. We're digging out some of the archive film too and we're posting it on the RT Sports social media channels. And I urge you to take a look at this one in particular because it's quite special footage in there. You won't hear on the radio Barry being checked at a border crossing as he went about his morning jog and also the Dublin homecoming. 400,000 people turned out to greet him. A true Irish hero that lifted the spirits of this country at a very difficult time. Referee 
Ryan's looking very closely to Tony in real trouble. McGuigan piles on the pressure and it's all over. Yes, McGuigan has done it. I'm very keen to fight for the world title and I think that I have, I have the ability to win it and I'd like to prove that before I'm finished. Remember Argentina, the World Cup in 1978. Well, they're throwing that paper confetti down from the balconies. It's an ecstatic welcome for the little man from Florence. And then we found a pair of gloves one time when I was about like about 11. One pair, there was about 10 of us. So we all took a glove each, one glove each, and started having this boxing competition. And I was surprised that I was able to batter most of them, you know. And they were all older than me, and I, and I thought, you know, I could be good at this. However this fight goes, I've seen most of Barry McGuigan's fights as an amateur and a professional, Reg. And this is the fight of his life. Remember in the seventh round, he started sort of backing me up, trying to back me up because he couldn't stand the pressure that was putting him under. And I caught him. It stunned him and he started falling back and then nailed him with the left hook. It was a landmark in the fight. That was the turning point. It didn't stop him coming at me. He was still there right up to the bell. What a fantastic fighter. We're very near Pedrosa's corner and I think they're absolutely resigned to it that the championship... Ladies is and gentlemen, Here it is. this is the result. A unanimous decision. Unanimous decision. Barry McGuigan is the new WPA world champion. Barry McGuigan, champion of the world. Jimmy, Jesus. A dream come true. A dream come true for me. We'll be crushed to death here. Barry, Barry, tell us something. What did you think? Uh, I was so pleased to win it the way I did. I didn't want to just be a flash in the pan and just scrape through. And how many times did I put him down, Jimmy? Oh, I don't. I lost. <laughs> Twice the bell it. saved him several times. Oh, I'm so Barry, I'm so proud of you. Oh, well so done. Proud. And for me, the highlight probably was coming back to Dublin and Belfast. 75,000 people had gathered in Royal Avenue. And then I went home, and then two days later I went down to to Dublin. We boarded the bus at the bottom of O'Connell Street. I'll never forget it. It was about 400,000 people came out to see me. I'll never, ever forget it. It was just incredible. It was a great time. It was a marvellous time, and, and I think it was probably the only positive thing in, in, in Northern Ireland in during the mid-'80s uh, to cheer about, and, and uh, that made it all more different when, when they came along to support me. The support was just incredible, passionate. Incredible support. Wasn't that brilliant? What times they were. Barry McGuigan, our hero this morning. Keep those ideas coming into a sporting moments at rte.ie is the email. Been reporting this morning clusters of COVID-19 in nursing homes here have more than doubled since the weekend. Latest figures from the chief medical officer last evening revealed there are now 137 clusters of the infection in nursing homes and other residential facilities with 74 of those in the east of the country. All this makes it an extremely anxious time for families who have loved ones in a residential nursing home. They can no longer visit their family members and in light of those growing numbers some are in increasingly concerned about the vulnerability of their relatives and whether they're being adequately protected. We're joined by our reporter Aoife Hegarty, who's been talking to a number of families who find themselves in this situation. Aoife, what have these families been saying to you? 
Well, Brian, yesterday morning, Minister for Health Simon Harris spoke on this programme about those concerns relating to nursing homes. He made it very clear that everyone who is, everyone should be treated equally. And should a nursing home resident contract the coronavirus, they are as entitled to hospital treatment as anyone else. He said there would be no discrimination and that the pathways are the same for all. But following that interview, we spoke with several families who were adamant that has not been their experience. They include one woman whose mother is resident in a nursing home in the west of the country. Now, she didn't want to be identified in order to protect her mother's identity. And while she says she has no reason to believe her mother is not being well looked after, she has received correspondence which directly contradicts Minister Harris's statement regarding the treatment of nursing home residents. She says when she questioned the facility in which her mother lives in recent days as to what will happen if or when a resident contracts a virus, she was told in writing that they would be cared for in the nursing home. And I quote, there will be no no transfer to hospital. Now, as a result, she believes there's now an onus on the Department of Health to bring clarity to this situation as a matter of urgency, to both ease the responsibility on nursing homes, but also importantly, to ease the considerable stress affected family members find themselves under at this time. I think it would be helpful if nursing homes were to be informed by the minister um, or his department that um, there isn't a blanket veto on on patients of, of, or residents of nursing homes being admitted to hospital, that, that if required, they can be admitted to hospital. Just to know that, that, that there everybody, there's no discrimination um, and people can go to hospital if they need to go to hospital. You know, we should give everybody a chance to get better if they possibly can, or as I say, simply to make sure that people are in the adequate environment where they can get the best alleviation um, from any distressing physical symptoms that they, that, that they, that they could have. It's, it's very worrying. It's, it's hard to think about it. One woman's concerns about her mother. Aoife, you also spoke to another family with similar concerns. Yeah, in this second case, I spoke with a man whose father is also resident in a nursing home. Now, he too didn't wish to be identified to protect his father, but he says he was taken aback when he heard the minister yesterday, adding that the reality on the ground in his family's circumstances paint a very different picture of the nursing home sector as it struggles to deal with the evolving coronavirus situation. Now, in this case, the nursing home in which his father lives has already had at least one COVID case and he feels the facility is already under severe strain and pressure as it tries to cope. Now, that's a stark reality, he says, coming at a time when he can't even visit his dad and knowing that the COVID situation here has yet to really peak. For him, the worry is that nursing homes, just like his dad's home, are going to be left behind. It's just chaos when you're in there and they're they're really worried and, you know, you know, I was told yesterday. You know, we're look, we're begging for help from the HSE, and they they feel like they're, you know, really struggling to respond to the crisis. And 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 nursing homes have have nurses either out sick or, in the, in the case I was told, like they're symptomatic, so they've they've they're working with like fewer nurses and they've healthcare workers, and like it just feels a little bit like you've thrown a dice, and you're really just waiting that like in ten days' time we're going to hear that there hasn't been a full blown outbreak. In the, in the nursing home, but there has been at least one case in this nursing home and it, you, you're just, there's nothing you can do at the, the moment. So it's it's very, um, I, I appreciate, you know, uh, the minister doesn't want to like spread panic, but at the same time, like there is a crisis, an absolute crisis in, 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 in the nursing home sector from what we're hearing.
you feel very helpless. You're just uh, you're ringing every day and hoping that you know uh, you're, you're you're not going to hear bad news about your parents. In our case, like my dad has had some some health issues recently, and you know you're just ringing every day to get an update. And like you know he's got a temperature, but he hasn't any other symptoms. So you're just like you know until you hear every day that uh, he's got through the night and there isn't another symptom. You're 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 concerned, you know. And and it's it's the inability to do anything. You know, you're not you're not able to influence this. Eva, what would these families like to see happen now? Well, representative bodies for the sector are now calling for nursing homes to be allowed to carry out carry out their own COVID nineteen testing to help stem the outbreak. And obviously, that issue for families of loved ones is crucial that they receive the best possible care they can at a time when they are potentially at their most vulnerable. And key to that, in their opinion, is prioritising nursing homes and the resources. In the case of the man who we've just heard from, he believes that while some attempts are now being made to address the nursing home situation. Those efforts need to be cranked up significantly, with elderly residents being given the priority they deserve. He believes a failure to act on that immediately could have devastating consequences. I, I really think if, if we're prioritising testing, we should be prioritising testing in nursing homes. I do really feel like the, all the focus is on the ICU. We're talking about these clusters in nursing homes, but we're not really like taking it seriously. Like I, you know, Talking about HICWA supporting the nursing home sector are great. Like HICWA is an inspectorate though. I don't, under, like HICWA don't have nurses that they can send out to have, you know, they don't, they, they can't get boots on the ground. That's what they really need. They need like boots on the ground and get into those nursing homes because uh, otherwise we're, you know, they're going to be decimated. Out of sight, out of mind. The concerns of some families with loved ones in nursing homes brought to us there by Aoife Hegarty. Thank you very much for that, Aoife. The National Public Health Emergency Team will meet again today and is expected to recommend an extension to the current restrictions on movement introduced almost a fortnight ago to help contain the spread of COVID-19. The number of people who have died from coronavirus infection on the island of Ireland is now 345, 82 people in the north and 263 people in the Republic. The strict limits on leaving home and travelling to places of work were originally put in place to last until this Sunday, Easter Sunday. At yesterday's COVID-19 daily briefing, Dr Tony Hoolan, the Chief Medical Officer, said the arrangements currently in place will not be lifted until certain goals are achieved. We still think there is further progress that we need to make and we want to make uh, and continue to, to push that reproductive number down as low as we can get it uh, and we'll continue to track the infection over that time period. And in parallel with that, we will, we will look at all the other aspects of our readiness, which includes a significant step up from where we are at the moment in relation to the full capacity uh, around our public health management of this, which is around the case identification, uh, the testing, uh, the recommendation for testing, the, the swabbing, the testing of those swabs, the contact tracing that results, the follow-up of those contacts, uh, which may involve testing of those at a point in time, uh, and also the, the, the information systems to support our management of all of that. And all of that is happening uh, uh, with, 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 with the greatest, if you like, of priority to try and ensure that we're in a position to, when the time is right and not before, recommend a change in terms of the, uh, the arrangements that are currently in place. That's Dr. Tony Houlihan. Let's talk now with Killian de Gaskin. He's chair of the Coronavirus Expert Advisory Group and laboratory director at the National Virus Reference Laboratory. Killian de Gaskin, good morning again. Thank you for talking to us today. How long do you expect? Good morning, Gavin. Thanks for having me on. How long do you expect the current restrictions to last? So the the challenge for us, Gavin, is I suppose is trying to lift them at a 
time when we're in a position to monitor what's happening very closely from a virus perspective in the community. So as Dr. Hulden has said there, we are still, we have had a positive impact on flattening the curve. I know Professor Nolan spoke at the press briefing yesterday evening. So the number, the percentage of new cases day on day has fallen from over 30% at the start of the epidemic to less than 10%. So that's a really positive step, but the problem is it still needs to be zero. The number of infections that are resulting from an infection, the reproductive number, the or not, has fallen from an average of between four and five to between two and three. That's very positive, but that needs to be less than one. So they're the type of, I suppose, we've made a lot of progress, but we need to do better before I think we can realistically lift those restrictions. However, we are conscious of the fact that the restrictions are very difficult for people and they are not sustainable in the in the long term. So what we would hope to do is be able to lift those within the next perhaps couple of weeks and then monitor the situation from a virus perspective and then perhaps increase the restrictions again if needs be, depending on the number of cases, depending on the number of people going into hospital, the number of people going into intensive care. Ultimately, what we have to try and do is control the impact on our health service. And if we get to a situation where, for example, we have a, a thousand new cases per day, then that will overwhelm our intensive care system in a very short period of time and I think while people will be finding the restrictions difficult I think we just need to look at other countries like Italy like the United States like Spain this virus if given an opportunity can run rampant and it's really important that people that we can't become complacent even though we have had a very um, successful implementation of measures thus far there's there's still a long way to go unfortunately but from the point of view of we would like to be able to lift the restrictions as soon as possible so that people can return to some level of normality. However, the other aspect that Tony, uh, Dr. Tony Hulan would have mentioned is in the context of what happens from a testing and contact tracing perspective when we do lift those restrictions. Yes. So we know our testing, what we, what we want to be able to do as we lift those restrictions is really test and contact trace in real time. So that means people getting their test results within 48 hours, ideally, and the contact tracing process starting within 24 hours. Yes. So we have brought additional, we have additional laboratory capacity coming on stream this weekend. We've acquired additional um, equipment, in essence, and um, extraction platforms this week, which will be validated over the coming days. So assuming all of those things work as they're supposed to work, we would expect our laboratory testing capacity to increase dramatically over the next seven to ten days and that will give us more confidence then in the real-time monitoring of the virus in the community and that's one element of what we need to see before we can lift the restrictions. Uh, Tony Hoolan said as we heard there that any reversal of restrictions however limited a reversal will depend on reducing the infective rate increasing the turnaround of testing as as you've explained and the accuracy of tracing. How long is it taking to get a test result now? So there are, so there, there are two separate groups um, based on the restrictions we have in supplies. So we're prioritising samples from hospitalised patients and for healthcare workers. And where those are readily identifiable, they are getting results within probably within 24, 48 hours. And then I suppose there's the community side of things where these are people who have been deemed not to require hospitalisation and can stay at home and can self-isolate and manage themselves. Those individuals, some of them I know will be waiting 7, 10, 14 days for results. And, and I know that's not good enough. Um, but as I said, significant measures have been introduced over the, over the last week and this week in particular in the context of increasing lab capacity and bringing new platforms. People know that we've been talking about global shortages of, of lysis buffer and um, yes. extraction reagents over recent weeks. So what we've done is moved to 
different platforms with different supply chains so that ourselves and the NVRL and the hospitals around the country aren't all pulling from the same um, supply chain, if you like. So that's, uh, so we're hopeful that that will give us more resilience in the coming weeks and months, um, but also allow us to scale up our capacity significantly. The the almost 500 people who are, or at least on Wednesday, uh, at any rate, according to the HSC documents that we've seen, who were in hospital with suspected COVID-19 but awaiting test results, how long are they waiting for results? So I, I don't have an answer to that for you, Gavin, unfortunately. So some of those would be tested on site in the hospitals and it's possible that, again, depending on capacity issues in, the, in those hospitals, some of them would have come to ourselves at the NVRL. So generally speaking, we're prioritising hospitalised samples and getting them done as quickly as possible. But that, as I said, in the NVRL previously, um, we're currently down to about 30% of our capacity. But again, we hope to see that rectified over the, the coming sort of five to seven days. So we're hoping that hospitalised patients and healthcare workers are getting results within 24, 48 hours. But in essence, as, as soon as is, is poss- physically possible, given what we have available at this point in time. We'll get to news headlines shortly. If, from an optimistic reading that the rate of uh, the the number of people who are entering ICU remains stable as it has done in recent days if the reproductive rate the number of people who become infected from each positive case approaches one or goes below that in two weeks time where could you see us being what restrictions could be lifted first so that's a really good question and I, I think what we would like to try and do is allow people a, a little bit more um, movement outside of the house so the the strong stay at home message may be something that we could move initially. There may be an opportunity to uh, open more, say, of the retail um, services that were that were closed uh, formally a couple of weeks back. In essence, it would be, I suppose, looking in reverse uh, manner from how the restrictions were implemented. As I said, we're not going to be going back to a normal state of affairs because I think just to clarify for people and maybe give them some context on this, although the numbers that we're seeing, six and a half thousand, are are very frightening and we have to remember that each of those is an individual, a family and and all the rest of it, that equates to somewhere in the region of, what is it, 0.1% of the population or somewhere along those lines, um, or maybe 0.01. So there's still a huge... Um, cohort of the population that is susceptible to this virus. So there's no natural immunity there existing in the community. Now we will do some seroprevalence studies which is where we'll take uh, blood from an awful lot of people to try and see how many infections have occurred that have been very mild or asymptomatic and maybe people haven't realised that they've been infected. So those population-based studies will also be carried out to inform um, the lifting of the restrictions. But ultimately what we want to do is protect the majority of the people for as long as possible because as you know we still don't have a an effective antiviral against this agent or against this virus we still don't have an effective vaccine so really it's possible that they'll while we will try and lift as many restrictions as possible in the in the coming weeks it's possible that we may need to re-escalate again at some point in the future and it's possible that there may be some form of restriction in place for for, for quite a while yet until we see exactly what until we can get the curve or the, the pandemic or the epidemic in the country under control and, and suppressed. Killian de Gaskin, Chair of the Coronavirus Expert Advisory Group, thank you very much uh, for your time again this morning. 
While some have been heartwarming, more are simply laugh out loud. The viral videos which have emerged as a result of the restrictions on our movements have kept many of us smiling during these difficult times. From exercise videos gone wrong to bingo on balconies, there have been plenty to keep us distracted and amused. Our reporter Tommy Meskel has been speaking to some of the people behind Ireland's viral videos. Good morning all. And welcome to my weekly blog on how to get fit and stay fit. Now this morning... Well, I'm totally gobsmacked by the whole thing, Tommy, because it was simply skip between me and a friend of mine. You put your leg up in the chair like that and you straighten it out. Oh, gee. Very good for the abs. Is there any abs there there? When a golfing buddy sent Kevin Commons a fitness video, the corkman decided to get one up on his friend and sent him back a mock demonstration on how to improve his stretching. You go forward, right? Oh, 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 like that. And you do that for about 10 minutes. I didn't mean it to go viral at all. I didn't mean it to go public at all, shall I say. I'm a former school teacher, you know. I shouldn't be carrying on like that. This was just something privately me and Peter, and I think Peter just more or less shafted me. I think, and uh, if my mother heard that language that I was using, <laughs> she'd be turning in her grave, Miss Farsi woman. In Sligo, 12-year-old Katie Regan was left speechless after her parents organised a drive-by birthday. And my mum and dad organised all my friends to drive past my house for my birthday with signs and stuff. Well, I was only expecting to have like a really small birthday that was quiet because my grandparents couldn't come. And I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> It made me happy. So. 59. There's been bingo on balconies. Can you have a check down there? Michael Larkin and his children's there. clever game has since gone global yes. with okay. millions of views. Still doing it. Haven't stopped doing it. Uh, just this weekend, we just gave a little break from the bingo and I've, I've come up with the idea to do a karaoke, balcony karaoke. Meanwhile, over at the Oliver Bond Street Flats in Dublin, a group of women donned veils and black bags and put on their own sister act. Gail Cullen was behind the idea. I was just lying in bed and I set up a group chat on Facebook for the neighbours in the near blocks and I said to them, look, I was thinking of an idea uh, to do a sister act. Everyone either got white bags or socks, white socks. And then we all came out to the balcony. I went down to the block. And then they all had the words of the song. So when I was singing to them, I was letting on to be um, Whoopi Goldberg and, and Sister Act. So I was singing and then they were kind of answering back. We were like doing a bit of a choir. Among those singing along, 92-year-old Miss Dodds. Oh, they all dressed up, they did. Well, I'm 92, going on 93, so <laughs> we have a great community here in Oliver Bond. I wouldn't leave this place. I'm here since 1958, and I wouldn't leave this place at all. It's the best of neighbours. If viral videos didn't have us laughing out loud, they were tugging on heartstrings. Leaving Cert students from a choir in Trim and County Meath recorded a song for Ireland's healthcare workers. Oh
We were just discussing about how it's weird that we don't aren't rehearsing because we rehearse every week and we're not rehearsing, we're not singing or working on anything. Michal Kerr is their music teacher. Very um, simply done. There was no big technical advancements used here. They used their phones and they sent those individual recordings then back over to me. And again, just on my laptop, I used a very basic program, Window Movie Maker, to just piece it all together. Um, and we came up with the final production. someone, whether it's a parent, whether it's a grandparent, brother, sister, a neighbour that works in the front line. So I suppose this is a, we just came across the idea of maybe using our time wisely and recording this song. Lovely students from Skullwira in Trim ending that report. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.